Hello and welcome to How Books Are Made, a podcast about the art and science of making books. I'm Arthur Atwell. About ten years ago, our family room was half filled with boxes and boxes of books. In each of those boxes were twenty copies of one truly beautiful children's book that I'd published. It was a large, colourful, hardcover edition with end papers and a thick, silky dust jacket. I loved that book so much that I printed 3,000 copies with money I borrowed from the bank. And in the months that followed, I learned, not for the first time and not for the last, that I am very, very bad at marketing books. In the end, I sold 250 copies and then lived with those boxes piled to our ceiling for more than a year. At one stage much later, I used stacks of them as the legs of our office boardroom table as a monument to my hubris. Eventually, and happily, I found a children's book charity to take them as a donation. Marketing is one of the great mysteries of publishing to me. People who can build brands and inspire communities of fans around books are nothing less than alchemists, even more so when they write their books too. And so, for this first episode of How Books Are Made, I wanted to speak to one of these alchemists. Sam Bickbessinger is the best-selling author of Manage Your Money Like an Effing Grown-Up, a book, and now a website, and a growing brand that spans countries. She also writes horror stories, and on hugely popular kids' TV shows and was one of the writers on Serial Box and Marvel's Jessica Jones Playing With Fire serialised novel. I've known Sam for a while, and we've made books together for children's publisher Book Dash. She is irrepressibly joyful and optimistic, which is something we all need a dose of right now. To kick off our conversation, I asked Sam how Manage Your Money had come to be. So um, I was working at 22.7, which is a personal financial management app, uh, must have been probably, what, five years ago now. And I was finding it really satisfying because it was solving a problem that I really care about, which is, you know, money is this terrifying thing and no one teaches anyone how money works. I had never been taught and was trying to figure it out. And I felt like I had learned so much in the process of working at this company and being surrounded by other people who were thinking and talking about money all the time that I kind of just was filled with this information that I was desperate to share. So I just started writing some blog posts that kind of summarized everything that I had learned. And I called it how to manage your money like an effing grown up, which felt like a you know, lighthearted, fun title for blog posts would never have been what I would have called a book. <laughs> and then while like the weekend after I wrote those blog posts, I got involved in this tiny, really interesting little project that you might've heard of called Book Dash, Arthur. <laughs> and at Book Dash, I wrote a book called uh, Hipper Wants to Dance, which remains my favorite thing I've ever written. And my editor was none other than Esther Levenrod. No the ways. incredibly amazing Esther, who worked for Jonathan Ball Publishers. And we met at Book Dash and we started chatting and we got on really well. And I mentioned to Esther that, hey, I'd been working on these blog posts um, because how the heck does money, how, how is money, you know? 
Um, and she was like, oh, that sounds cool. I should read them. And then she read them and then she commissioned a book for me. So actually, all of this is your fault. <laughs> that is amazing. I can't believe Book Dash led to that book. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was a little serendipitous meeting. And it was this funny thing because, you know, there is this real question of when does something need to be a book? When is it a better home inside, you know, printed paper and old trees? And a lot of a lot of turning it into a book was kind of uncomfortable for me because I'm someone who's been a blogger for a long time and I've podcasted for a long time. And those are all mediums where you can change your mind and you can keep refining things. And as you learn more, you can keep updating everything and adding to the body of knowledge and revising. Um, and the weird thing about putting it all in a book was that it crystallized everything at that moment in time in a way that was incredibly helpful and powerful for me as a thinking tool, but also has been very odd <laughs> um, because already now, a couple of years later, there are parts of the book that I, where my thinking has progressed a little bit or where I've learned more um, about these topics. And you can't go back and, and just update, update the book. The book exists. It has a, a complete life of its own now. But it also went much further and I think helped many more people being in book form than it ever would have if it had just stayed a medium post. Yeah, there's something about that crystallizing, I like that word, um, in a book that is obviously what we all love about books. And yet somehow something about the zeitgeist of everything being all knowledge must be 100% up to date kind of uh, is at odds with that desire to crystallize something and have it set at least briefly in stone uh, that we haven't, we haven't really resolved that yet in the world of publishing. I mean, I kind of, how I've dealt with it with, uh, the money book is in the book, I included the website link and I said in the book, anything that goes out of date quite quickly, I'm not going to put in the book. I'm going to put on the website, uh, so that I kind of hedged my bets a little bit. Um, so there are some kind of companion pieces to the book that just work better as living, breathing documents, you know, like the list, the live list of what are good bank accounts or, you know, where, where can you, if you should actually open a savings account, what is a good savings account to open? Those are things that exist on the website. And that's been a pretty good compromise, I think. Yeah, the book seems to have some kind of a kind of tribe uh, of mm. of true true fans. Did you have to build that tribe from scratch? I mean, my my sense is that nothing happens accidentally, and books in and of themselves don't create tribes. You have to still do mm. a whole lot of hard work, and some of that, you know, you share with your publisher, and some of it you just have to get done yourself. Mm. I remember when we spoke, when it was still a book was still in production. You were still thinking through how you were going to actually promote and market the thing. What was that journey like? So I think this is something that I didn't realize before I published the book is that your job as a writer, I would say a full 50% of it is marketing, which is terrible because I would much rather write another book than market, market a book that already exists. It's the part of the job I find the most stressful. I, I have a new book coming out, a new money book coming out in September, September 1st, which is a teen version of the money book. Uh, the mouth washed, washed out with soap version is what I'm calling it. And yeah, so I'm like back on this, back on this ride again, Whew. and kind of dreading it, uh, honestly, but there are parts of it that are really fun. So I guess my approach to marketing was, as I do everything, was throw a bunch of things at the wall and see what sticks. I had never released a book before, so I didn't know what would work. 
so I tried a bunch of things that did not work. So the things that did not work for me were social media was one thing. I know that there are some writers who really have, it's quite a natural space for them engaging in social media. And it's kind of an extension of who they are. And it's very easy for them to build a tribe and, and kind of continue a conversation with people in that platform. Social media is just not a thing that I do naturally in my day-to-day life. So trying it was incredibly artificial and it just didn't work. It didn't connect. I had a whole bunch of people sign up for Facebook pages, but then I just didn't know how to have a conversation with people. The thing that really did work the most, that was the most powerful um, was the email list. And it was something where the from the first day that the book was released, I built a website for it and it had an email uh, sign up, sign up form. And I didn't do anything with that email list for a full year and a half after the book came out. I just had this feeling of, you know, this, this could be, this could come in handy one day, maybe. Um, and I got that piece of advice actually from some of my friends in indie video game development. Um, you know, they had, it's a very similar space being an indie game developer because increasingly, um, while the publishing industry does do Uh, you know, so much to help promote a book more and more, it really is down to what the writer does, I think. And that's, that's as true for, for indie, indie games. And I'd heard from them, you know, the problem with relying on these social platforms is that you're then your reliance on the whims of Mark Zuckerberg and changing algorithms and none of the stuff is in your control and it can all be changed and it can all be taken away whenever they feel like it. So it's really important to own your community and to really start deepening the relationship with the people who really do care about your work uh, from day one. And that was just the most powerful piece of advice that I got really. So I started building the email database before I really knew what to do with it. But over the years, that has been really the center of, of everything because the relationship that I have with the people that I email and I try and email them every week. We kind of have this, this weekly newsletter thing now. Those are the deep, the people who connect deeply with the book. Um, and who, and, and it's, it's quite a, a bi-directional uh, conversation. You know, they email me, they ask me questions. I try to respond to as many of them as I can. And that's having that core group of people who are very connected to my work has been so much more useful than having a much larger group of people who are kind of just social media followers. Um, and that's the thing that I've learned is, is really just to nurture um, and to make sure that you are offering really good value to the community that is building around what you're doing. That's, that's my approach to marketing. What you do is you just have to be incredibly helpful. Just be as helpful as you can and give as much as you have space for. Um, and and that's, that's what kind of builds builds the people around your, your work who will help you in turn to promote it and to share it and to, yeah, and to, and to, to build it into something bigger. Yeah. You've really had to kind of empower them to be the word of mouth. They're not going to mm-hmm. do it without you giving them some tools to, to share and something to get excited about. You, yeah. You've also had to get like super committed to this project. I mean, you <laughs> you've really built an empire around it. Did that ever feel like a prison or was that always just an exciting new area to keep exploring or both? No, definitely. And I think the answer is definitely both. Um, I I think this often happens where your commitments always are responsibilities, right? Um, And the commitments that you make to yourself and the commitments that you make to other people, you know, I believe in honoring them. So there are people who have 
done so much for me and have been so have made so much of a difference to my life and my ability to be a writer as a career that I owe them I owe them kind of what they what they've come to me for and mostly what people have come to me for is you know really connecting with me around talking about money problem is I find talking about money often a bit boring <laughs> um you know and it, it I think what has been really interesting has been trying to explore the edges of what are the things that I can talk about with the community that's where it still feels like I'm honoring the agreement that we have in the space, um, but that kind of stretch what it is. So, you know, over in the first cut, the sort of year of the email newsletter, it was very much around personal finances. And when I launched the podcast a year ago with Chronicle and Diana Neal and uh, that team, that was largely around seeing if we could add in other topics about adulting. Um, so kind of start talking about fitness or start talking about relationships or emotional skills or interpersonal skills or other things that I care about and other things I was interested in learning. Um, and, you know, happily people responded really well to that. Um, so, and then kind of in the last year, I, I've really even tried to push it a bit further, which is, you know, the, the other stuff that I really care about writing is fiction. And it's it's a bit of a difficult, it, it does sort of feel like I'm reneging on the contract with my readers to some extent where I say, yeah, I know you came to me because you're really interested in money skills. And now I'm telling you about this ridiculous YA horror novel that I'm writing about body snatches. Um, I know, I know it's, it's kind of not what you're here for. But I guess the you have a choice in that situation. You can either fragment your community and you can you can say, okay, cool, this is kind of, I'm going to build a brand around the money stuff and the money stuff is just going to be the money stuff and I'm going to build a new brand around the other things I want to do. And I think that that probably would be the quote unquote better way from it with a marketing hat on. But I also have just wanted to trust my readers that part of what they're connecting with is me as a person and that I would rather, again, I'd rather maintain just the smaller core of them who will come on this ride with me and are interested in, you know, the fact that financial freedom to me means freedom to write ridiculous fiction, that that's an interesting journey for them as well. And I would rather liberate myself from that own expectation and bring a smaller group of them with me on that journey than continue to build up the like of grown up empire as an empire and feel trapped in it forever. Mm. Maybe less in, in like an having grown up, but more I've seen in the other projects. You're also a keen collaborator back from the early podcast days with, with Simon Dingle and, and with the fiction now. And, you know, you mentioned that the book came out of conversation with Esther Levenrad. It sounds like you're someone who unlocks new possibilities because you find these people to, to work with. Mm, exactly. Yeah, that's a, it's a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, I just, for me, what I, my joy of writing and, and writing really is my joy. Um, it's it's my, my deep love. And a big part of that joy is the playfulness of it. I love the playfulness of learning something new and trying to figure out what you believe about something. And I love the playfulness of bouncing ideas around with other people. And I love, I love the sense of, you know, we can create something far more interesting together than what you could create alone. 
you know, like nothing about the the money book could have happened if I hadn't had an incredible team behind me. Like the money book wouldn't have happened if Esther hadn't seen the possibility for it. And if Jonathan Ball hadn't as a whole team kind of really jumped on board and promoted it as well as they did and been so passionate about championing it amongst the, the, the bookstores, you know, they really just turned it into something bigger. And then other people came on, you know, and, and I think my, my attitude to all of this is it, it really has worked when it's been based on an authentic connection and off friendship, right? So all of these things really have come out of me just wanting to hang out with my buddies. You know, making the podcast was because, you know, I've known Diana since uh, university days, Diana Neal uh, from Chronicle, and we just wanted to hang out together and make something. Uh, the book that I'm, the novel that I'm writing currently is with, you know, one of my best friends, uh, Dale Halverson. And it's just a great excuse to sit around and make each other laugh and gross each other out and, and do that thing. You know, it's, it's, it's why I love TV as well. Uh, TV writing is, is very collaborative. Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so much fun. It really, really is. I, I literally can't imagine anything I'd rather be doing with my time. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I remember yeah. you and I had coffee many months ago and talked about what it would look like to get a team of people to write fiction in the way that TV is written. Yes. Uh, was that before or after you started working on the Marvel Serial Box Jessica Jones project? It, it was it was kind of very much something that led into that project. So, um, yeah, you and I had this amazing conversation where we were talking about why can't we write more novels in a collaborative way where you have a showrunner and you have a team of writers? Um, because I had just started working uh, with Sunrise Productions on Team J and, and had started playing in the, in the animation space. And I was like, this is so much fun. Why do people not write novels like this? And then um, through that route, became aware of a company called Serial Box, which is one of the really interesting fiction innovators and they are essentially doing exactly that. They're creating serialized fiction. Um, and then they had, unbeknownst to me, had just signed an agreement with Marvel. And the so the first one that they brought out was Thor. Um, and then they brought out Je a Jessica Jones story, which I was incredibly, incredibly lucky to be able to be part of writing. And it was just indescribably fun. Um, and writing for Marvel was incredible because not only are you collaborating with the other writers who were, who were on the project. So there were, I think there were five of us, um, who were writing that story, but any Marvel story that you write is also inherently fan fiction in a way, because so many other writers have touched that character and told stories about that character and, and developed the world. The world has such clear rules and boundaries and it's so richly populated so not only are you collaborating with the people in the room with you but you're also collaborating with sort of virtually with everyone else who's ever told a jessica jones story and that was that's oh, amazing oh it was so good it was so good it was so fun <laughs> and how, how, and how, how does it actually work in practice like are you sending each other drafts on email are you on a video call topic ideas or what, what does that process look like? Both. I mean, so it ran very much like how a TV writing room runs. So we started off in the same room together, threshing, sort of breaking the story. So figuring out what the key beats were, figuring out who the characters were and what kind of story we wanted to tell, kind of just figuring out the main skeleton of the plot. 
And then from there, the story was broken down and into sections. We sort of figured out where the where the, the main sections were and assigned them to individuals. And then we as individuals went and wrote our own chapters. So I wrote chapters nine to 12, basically. Um, and two of those chapters I wrote sort of quite independently. And then two of them I wrote with Zoe Quinn, who's also just an incredible writer. And the solo ones was more kind of, I, I went off and, and because you know where you have to begin the scene and you know where you have to end the scene. And we'd, cause we'd worked that all out together in the room. There's still an enormous amount of exploration that you can do in getting from A to Z. And then of course it just went through many, many, many rounds of iteration. And we worked with Helen Moffat, uh, who was the editor, who's just, you know, the most incredible editor I've Wonderful. ever worked with. Yeah. I mean, just the best team. And she has that incredible eye for, um, you know, making sure that everything is building in a, in a logical and coherent way, that the characters' actions make sense between all these different scenes that we built. Um, yeah, and then we kind of just rewrote over and over until it all kind of made sense. And it, it, it was a very enlightened way to tell, to write a, to write a, a book, and I think more people should do it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds amazing. It's uh, also incredible that that particular team could come together. I don't know, Zoe, but Lauren Bickers was on the team, right? Yeah, she was the showrunner. And then, and then of course, Helen Moffat, who I've known for decades. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a dream team and a half. Did that team come together naturally, perhaps around Lauren? Lauren, as the showrunner, brought, um, brought in myself and brought in Helen. The, the original producer um, of the story had assembled the rest of the team. And what was really amazing as well is it's the kind of team that would never normally have been able to work together uh, were it not for, you know, Serial Box just being really open to ways of, of collaborating remotely. You know, so there were only three days when everyone was together in the same room. Beyond that, we, we had a lot of uh, email exchanges and a couple of video calls. But these were writers mostly from the US. Um, Zoe, for a lot of the time we were working, was based in Japan. And that was also just incredibly fun, getting to work with people that we wouldn't have been able to. Thank goodness we'd already established that way of working by the time COVID happened. And thank goodness we'd already broken the story together um, because most of the writing happened when we were all quarantined in different countries and different parts of the world, but it didn't interrupt our flow at all. Uh, so that was pretty amazing. I'm curious to, to dig in a little bit um, more about working with Serial Box. I think that their combination of text and audio is really interesting. Could mm. you just describe what their model is? So Serial Box, uh, so I think they do a couple of things interestingly. I think the first thing that they do that's interesting is it's, it's serialized fiction, which is a very old idea. Um, it's what Charles Dickens was doing, you know. And I think that they've, they've really returned to that idea of that's a really innate thing about humans. We, we want to get hooked by a story and follow characters over a long time. And there's something really powerful about waiting for the next installment. And then the other thing that's interesting is that they just really understand that people who read things, people, people are reading a lot these days. It's an absolute lie that people aren't reading or people are reading less. It's just that people are reading in a different way. One of the things I really love about Serial Box is that you can download a book on the app, you can start reading it, 
you can switch to audio, you can switch back to back to the app, um, and you can just do that seamlessly. So the book fits into your life uh, however it needs to. I think that's really cool. And then I'm keen to find out more about what it's like to work on a book, consciously knowing it's going to be an audio book as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I think that it's something that we should think about more often with all books, to be honest. Like, I think, you know, so much of how people consume books happens in an audio way now. I do think it should just be something that we think about from the beginning. It was a real challenge with my money book because so much of it was graphs and, and illustrations and diagrams. It It is very different thinking about a book um, from the beginning as audio. Uh, there was, when we were working on Jessica Jones, a lot of, a lot of the editing work was about realizing that some things that work quite well as descriptions on the page just don't translate very well when you read them out loud. I think that made me a better writer. Like I think it improved my style. Um, I spent a lot more time, uh, reading stuff I was writing to myself. And I, I think I've tried to carry that through in the novel that I'm, I'm working on because I think it just makes your prose cleaner. And now Magpies is the new project with Dale, right? Is yeah, that the next collaborative thing? And how's that process working and going to work? I think very similar. I think it's, there've been moments of coming together and then moments of, of go, working in parallel. Dale and I worked together. We wrote a short story together with Lauren, uh, Lauren Bukas a couple of years ago called uh, This Book Will Find You, uh, which we are currently trying to adapt the three of us together. So we know that we work well together. We know that we have very complementary skills. Dale has this incredible plot brain. Like he's really, really good at logic and detail. And he just has the most, comes up with these incredibly wild ideas, like big concepts. I really like getting lost in the weeds of the prose, you know, and kind of like discovering stuff as I, as I, as I go along, but I'm a much messier writer. So how it's worked with Dale is that we've had these weeks where we work together very intensely. Um, so we're having one of those weeks right now, actually. So I spent the whole morning on the phone with Dale uh, or on a Google Meet call. And we were we were trying to solve kind of some some core plot, plot questions and figure out some stuff about character arcs. And then basically we'll take like a month between those weeks where we are very much together, where we will work very separately. So Dale is working on, so our, our novel is kind of a mix between a horror story and a true, true crime story. So Dale is working on the true crimey parts of it and I'm working on the horror-y parts of it. And then, so we, we write, we write separately and then we'll come back together. Um, and we just kind of keep, keep doing that sort of movement and re-knitting, re-knitting it all back together. It's so fun. <laughs> and when you say you're writing different parts, are you literally writing different scenes or different kind of layers of the same scene? A bit of both. So there are some parts of it that are more the stuff that Dale is good at doing. So for example, a lot of the crime investigation stuff. So he will write the first draft of those scenes and I will write the first draft of other scenes that are more, more me kind of natural scenes. And then afterwards we will go and overwrite each other's scenes. So it's a bit of both. And are you working kind of into a live collaborative, say Google doc or notion document at the same yeah. time. I mean, I'm a, we've, we've had this conversation before as well. My dream writing tool, I don't think has quite been invented yet because I basically, my dream writing tool would be Google doc 
Google Docs, but in Markdown, like just very pure Markdown. <laughs> nice. I'm with um, you. Yeah, totally. So yeah, Google Docs has been our, our, main, our main thing. We also have, so I've been using Ulysses, which is a Markdown editor to keep track of all of our notes and characters and places and stuff like that. And then we just have that kind of as the user interface layer over a bunch of Markdown files that are sitting in a Google Drive folder. So that's how we're keeping track of all the research. Uh, the manuscript itself is currently sitting in the world's longest Google Doc. I do feel like I am kind of hitting the limits of what I want Google Docs to do, though, because we've written the first draft and now we're, we're, we're kind of in editing mode and we're doing a lot of shuffling of scenes. And that's proving quite onerous in Google, Google Docs. So I, I am considering doing the bad thing and cracking open Scrivener, but I like I, <laughs> I have this deep loathing of Scrivener because I hate that it's all a proprietary file format. But I but I, I want that pin board basically. I want I want to be able to have some meta information about each scene, and I want to be able to shuffle it around. Yeah, so we 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 really have been using a hodgepodge of tools. <laughs> it's it's the perfect tool. I've not found it yet. I would love to know if you have a better idea. <laughs> no, I, I, what I find interesting is wondering if there even is a perfect tool, like even platonically, like could there be a perfect tool or are we now just in a world where every creator has to assemble their own toolkit for what they want, what they need themselves? In the publishing world, for instance, we've lived in a world where for 30 years, everyone's used exactly the same software to lay books out. It's been in design before that Quark, before that probably PageMaker. And now that that's just been exploded in the same way that web development tools have been exploded. And I suppose the same is now happening for writing and for any area of creative mm. work. You don't get to find the perfect tool anymore. You have no <laughs> choice but to figure this stuff out the hard way and assemble your own Definitely. Set. Look, I mean, there are definitely worse tools. The one thing that was that was tricky about, I won't even say exactly which project it, it was, but one of the most recent kind of collaborative projects that I worked on is everything falls apart as soon as things go through an editor who is only comfortable working in Microsoft Word. <laughs> because as much, as much as you can, you and your other collaborators can get on the same page around, you know, Google Docs is just objectively better than trying to maintain these file names that are like date version 3.1.2 final, 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 <laughs> final, final. Um, and then let's just email these back and forth like cave people. But it's as a soon catastrophe. as you, it's a catastrophe. But the problem is, as soon as you hit the first person who will only work with uh, Microsoft Word documents, you like your whole system is broken now. <laughs> so interesting. L literally this morning, we decided at, in my little team not to work with a particular editor because they said they wouldn't work in Google Docs because they're scared of it. And I was like, I don't want to force Google Docs on them, but if but it's now just absolutely fundamental to our team that we won't. Know email files, MS Word files to each other. Totally we've just learned too many times the hard way. I mean, it was a real, it was a real challenge with uh, the, both of the, the money books, uh, both the original one. Well, and in fact, there's now, you know, there's a few versions of it as well, because there's a UK version that's fundamentally rewritten and there's a, there's a kid's version. And there were some real challenges with that one because there's a lot of graphs and illustrations in the book and it was very much typeset page by page. And 
the challenge is, so we made the South African version and there were a whole bunch of edits that only really happened once it had already been typeset. So we were essentially editing PDFs. The only way I could edit them ultimately was I pulled them up on my iPad and I used my pencil to hand write notes on them, which felt like an insane way to be doing edits. But that's that's kind of what made sense because of the workflow that we were following. And then the problem was a few months later, we said, let's adapt this book for the UK, which felt like it should have been fairly simple, but it wasn't because there were a whole bunch of edits that only existed in the PDF form. So we first had to literally go and copy and paste stuff out of the PDF back into an editable file before we could then go and start editing. And we didn't even learn our lesson because then we had to do the same thing again when it was the kids book. I was just like, why, why, why is this, why is this a thing? This is an objectively insane way uh, for books to work. Um, And it has made me feel like the next book I would be very wary um, ever again writing a book that required that much page by page, page setting, type setting for that reason. You know, I, I love hearing you talk about the Sam because um, <laughs> because you, you're someone who's come to publishing from a software background to some extent. And yeah. to you, this must seem so inconceivable. And yet what you've just described is literally the way things are done in the vast majority of publishing companies in the whole world. And it, it's astonishing, astonishing. And I think there are reasons. I, I think they have mm-hmm. to do with some very big systemic problems with the way money and skills move in mm-hmm. the, through publishing. But there still are the, the cause of so much waste. It's just breathtaking. I think that you really put your, your finger on it just now when you said a lot of this comes back to these quite deep questions about what is the business model of publishing and what is the role of publishers in this incredibly different world now. You know, I've had only only the utmost respect for everyone that I've worked with at my publisher. You know, and they're a very traditional traditional publisher in many ways, but every single person who I have worked with there has been just an absolute expert at what they do and has been so committed and so full of passion for books because, I mean, heck, you have to be, right? No one's in this for the money. I think it, it just really has been so visible how, firstly, how, compli- how complex their job has become and how tight their margins are. And, you know, the th- I think it, it really helped me as a writer when I understood what my publisher's role was. And I, I, I understood, like, let them do the things that they are great at doing and the rest is going to have to be on me. You know, they were incredible at distribution. They were amazing at firstly identifying that my book needed to exist. They were they were able to create an incredibly beautiful product and they were able to get it into every bookstore. Um, and they were also great at the traditional PR stuff, which I wouldn't have known, you know, where to start. And that did make a difference. They got the book, uh, they got extracts printed in magazines back before all the magazines had to close because COVID. You know, they they did all of those pieces so, so well. The things that I realize the publishers are not, they just don't have the capacity to do are a lot of the other stuff that marketing has become in 2020, uh, which is putting out content and and building that community around the book. And I don't think that any publisher actually could do that. I think that that really has to come out of, it has to be an extension of the project. Uh, so it has to be, it has to be out of you. I also wanted to ask a little bit about your working with Dale and cover design, because of course he's also this extraordinary cover designer. 
And and curious to know about the branding around Manage Your Money because that's a really strong visual brand as well. Uh, where did that design happen? So a big part of why the book has been so charming, the money book, was because I worked with, again, my friend who I just love hanging out with, who's an incredible artist called Nana Fenta. Um, Nana did all of the book illustrations. She did the cover design. She, you know, I, we worked with her again on the kids book. Um, and it, so there's even more illustrations and they're just so, so charming. Um, I know she's made some book dash books, books before as yeah, well. She's amazing. She's so great. Yeah. I think something that was really powerful, you know, Jonathan Ball were really great about letting me guide a lot of those things. I had a very clear vision for what I wanted my book to be. And I, I really wanted it to be as special as I could make it. I really believe in the idea of uh, polishing the underside of the drawers. So, you know, thinking about making everything as excellent as you can make it, even the things that you don't think matter. So I really thought about everything. I thought about who I wanted to do the cover. Um, I thought about the illustrations. I thought about as many of the parts of it that I could. And I I am a bit of a control freak as part of it, (laughs) but um, I really think that it, it helped. It helped to care about those things. I don't think the book would be half as special as it is if it weren't for all of the whimsy that Nana's illustrations add to it. And I think that's been true with all of these other projects. Like writing a novel is really hard and it's difficult to keep the motivation up and knowing that I'm accountable to Dale and that if I write a scene, it means that then I get to sit down with Dale and discuss that, that scene and that's going to be super fun. That's the best motivation that I've found. Yeah, like that's, that's the magic, I think. That's, that's the thing that makes it worthwhile for me. Have you and Dale slash Joey discussed the cover of Magpies yet? <laughs> I mean, I think he's going to have to do it. <laughs> it would be weird if he didn't. Um, we're, we're, the book that we're writing features a lot of uh, kind of found objects. It's a little bit like night film. Uh, we've, we've been very inspired by a book by Grady Hendrix called My Best Friend's Exorcism, uh, which has a lot of newspaper articles and, uh, and other little kind of interesting marginalia. So our book is set in 1996. We're writing about how the horrors of being a teenage girl in 1996. So a lot of what we're creating is kind of this extra found found objects um, that enrich the picture of who the characters are. A little bit like the video game Gone Home. That's been another another real reference reference for us or touch point. Um, so Dale, you know, it's 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 really helpful that Dale is both an amazing writer. And also an incredible designer because he's kind of adding all of these illustrations, all of these cool, you know, fake articles and and mixtapes that the characters have made each other, you know, just like really enriching it. It's so fun. It's so, so, so fun. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Do you have, have you already got a publisher connection or is that also something you have to figure out still? Uh, you know, we're at. At this point, we we're very much just still writing writing the draft. We haven't started thinking about those things yet. And from what you kind of been through already, working with different people, you know, as we've said, these are all lovely people in publishing. Do you have yeah. a sense of like where and what kind of team will make it work? You know, I always feel publishers who pass up great books get a a bad rap. You know, it's mm. easy to say, oh, so and so turned down J.K. Rowling, but as a publisher, if you don't know you can make something a success, then you're right to pass on it. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that 
that fit with the publisher is really, really important. I believe it is. Yeah, I believe it is. So, I mean, something that I have considered is I have considered self-publishing. Um, I would never have if I hadn't been through the journey of promoting a book already. But I have, and I think I have a clearer idea now of what all the pieces of a book are. You know, and a lot of what I talk about in the in the personal finance space is about the need to sort of be your own sugar daddy as much as you can and be able to support your own dreams because you can't rely on other people. You know, the publishing world is such a competitive one, especially fiction. And even though I've had some success in the nonfiction space, I, you know, I am not absolutely confident that I could definitely find a publisher for this book because who knows, you know, it is, it, it is such a, such a difficult game and you really have to have to have produced something excellent. I really love knowing that part of why I have put so much effort into building my own community is because I I want to know that they will support future projects that I do and that they they will come with me on whatever ride I end up going on. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's not to say that I wouldn't I wouldn't try to get a traditional publisher. I mean, I think if you if you can, that's a it's definitely a definitely a win. But, you know, I've been in the the kind of pitching hell in TV and movie land for the last year and a half and I've pitched, you know, these three shows to so many different people and the it, it is very competitive. There are so many amazing writers in the world. Um and I think part of what I've thought about in building my own community is I'm really committed to being a writer, not just being, be someone who wrote one book once. And that means to some extent, treating my own writing career like a business and making sure that I am building my own, my own audience if I need it. Thank you so much. I have learned a lot. That's been absolutely fascinating. Oh, I really it a was time. a really fun chat. Thank you. Thank you for spending your time with us. You can be part of the show if you send us your own bookmaking stories, topics, and conundrums, and you can do that at howbooksaremade.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe in your podcast player and leave a review. That really helps others find out about the show. How Books Are Made is supported by Electric Bookworks, where my team and I make books all day, every day, in sunny Cape Town, South Africa.